Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 21, Saddam Hussein the Daredevil. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Jump what we jump. Get a sponge bath when we... Maybe not. (laughs) Uh, And today I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 8, Bart the Daredevil, which first aired on December the 6th, 1990, which was a two-week gap from the last episode. And I'm going to be talking about the build-up to an event that dominated the news in the early 90s, the Gulf War. It merits two episodes, so in this one I'll be talking about the history of Iraq, the rise of Saddam Hussein, and the events preceding the Gulf War up to Saddam Hussein releasing Western hostages, which occurred on December 6th, 1990, the same day that Bart the Daredevil was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Tom... We've migrated. We have, we have. And I need to apologise for uh, a certain technical issue because uh, when we say we've migrated, that means that our website is now somewhere else on the internet uh, because our old hosts were trying to charge us an extortionate amount of money to uh, uh, to continue using their services. So I've, so I've moved it somewhere else. And that meant that the URL of all the episodes changed. So the podcasting services uh, decided to go and download all the episodes again. So uh, apologies for that, but it just meant that you got some more retrospectives. So yes, all's well that ends well. Unfortunately, probably including the first two or three episodes where uh, the technology was a bit different. Um, so if you've listened to any of that, sorry. Yeah, don't listen to the pilot. <laughs> Cannot stress that enough, people. However, if you would like to listen to something worthwhile, uh, episode five of Don't Let's Chart... Um, which we discussed last time, features me. Uh, and if you like to steam a good ham, or indeed if you like charts of any sort, that's a good podcast to be listening to. Yep, it's a good rundown of the top ten steamed ham memes. But they missed out the basket case version of steamed hams, which is brilliant. Well, Seymour, I made it, despite your directions. I hope you're prepared for an unforgettable luncheon. That's awesome. <laughs> Even even near the end, it's brilliant. You call them steamed hams when they're obviously grilled. It's awesome. It is a good one. I think the Smash Mouth one flows a bit better from start to finish, but when when the Basket Case one hits the uh, hits the peaks, it's it's a higher peak. It is, yeah, yeah. But then again, you don't want to listen to Woolstar. Didn't (laughs) didn't everyone have enough of that in early nineties? Whenever it was. Apparently not, judging by how many people are here singing it every day. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) The production number for this episode was 7F06, and the US viewership was... Well, I don't actually know. All I could find out was they finished 20th in the Nielsen ratings for the week, making it the highest-rated Fox show of the week. Okay. But Gareth, I hear you ask, what was the UK number one? All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. Ice is back with his brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly. Flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yeah, about there, actually. Uh, At number one, (laughs) 
It's the man who gave white rappers such a bad name that it would take Eminem to rehabilitate the form. It's Vanilla Ice with underpress. Uh, I mean, Ice Ice Baby. Mm. It's just everything about that was dreadful. <laughs> it's like, where do you start with that? Well, I mean, it wasn't even meant to be an A-side. I shall tell you a tale. It was originally released as the B-side to Mr. Ice's version of Play That Funky Music. But DJ David Morales is credited with playing this instead of the A-side, causing an upswing in popularity for Ice, real name Robert Van Winkle. It would hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in the US, plus the UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, Belgium, the Netherlands, and most importantly, Zimbabwe. Okay. Naturally, Queen and David Bowie would get involved very soon, feeling, and not unfairly in my view, that the song was just the intro of Under Pressure with someone rapping over the top of it. Mm -hmm. Van Winkle tried weakly to defend himself, but if you want to know how well that went, it's worth noting that the songwriting credit on the song now reads Vanilla Ice, DJ Earthquake, Freddie Mercury, Brian May, John Deacon, Roger Taylor and David Bowie. <laughs> um, did you, have you ever heard his defence of this, by the way? No, no. Essentially, it's that Under Pressure goes... Dung, 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 dung. Dung, 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 dung. Whereas his version goes... Dung, 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 dung. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, so he puts an extra beat in there, so therefore it's different. Oh dear. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Van Winkle would also hint that a legendary music executive, record producer, and founder of Death Row Records, Marion Shug Knight, also attempted to gain a slice of that pie through extortion on behalf of the rapper Mario Chocolate Johnson. And it's worth going and reading about that whole mess of rumour and counter-rumour, but I shall repeat no more here. The chalkboard gag for this episode was I will not drive the principal's car. And mm -hmm. the couch gag was Homer's weight tipping the couch over, leaving only Maggie upright. What happens? Well, it's a doozy, so get oh, ready for this. Brilliant one. We join Bart at home and Homer at Moe's, both tuned into the professional wrestling match of the century between Rasputin the Friendly Russian and <laughs> Professor Werner von Braun. That's Braun with a W. <laughs> which is eventually decided in the villain's favour by a red shot, which the WWF obviously remembered at 1998's No Way Out of Texas in Your House, where Kane dealt with Vader in a similar fashion. Now, I thought the Rasputin v Braun match was the one where one wrestler would be unmasked and killed in the ring. Oh, no, no. That's no, no, that's, that's actually mentioned in Season 4, Episode 17, Last Exit to Springfield, and was contested between Dr. Hillbilly and the Iron Yuppie. <laughs> anyway... This means father and son both get to see an advertisement for a monster truck rally so good that if you miss it, you better be dead or in jail. And if you're in jail, <laughs> break out. The main event of said rally is Truckosaurus, a transforming truck-stroke-dinosaur-machine hybrid that promises 20 tons and four stories of car-crunching, fire-breathing, prehistoric insanity. But Lisa puts a spoke in the wheels by reminding them of her school concert on the same night. After an authentically awful school concert at which Lisa is a standout star and, for some reason, the 1812 Overture is played with live cannons on a small elementary school stage, they're off to the rally. Upon arrival, their car is eaten by Truckosaurus <laughs> in a good little bit of pre-adverts peril. They survive and take their seats for the world's greatest daredevil, Captain Lance Murdoch, who attempts to jump a pool of water containing many dangerous things. Tom, can you name all those things? Right, okay, so... Uh, sharks. Man-eating great white sharks. Yeah. Piranhas. Ravenous piranha. 
An electric eel. Deadly electric eels. Um, there's there's one more aquatic thing that should be there, but there's also a lion. There is, yes. Uh, there are also bone-crushing alligators. Oh, yes. Of course, perhaps the frightening of all, the king of the jungle, one ferocious lion, and one drop of human blood. Oh. Lance makes the jump, but uh, in our first humorous pratfall of the episode, subsequently falls into the pool and is attacked by the aquatic terrors within. As he tries to make his escape, the lion pounces and drags him back in for a second morning. I mean, that is brilliantly done. That, that, that is, it's, it's not massively surreal, but it's... <laughs> they've just juxtaposed so many things there. It's, it, it, it's like, the lion's there, that's bad enough. Then the lion can swim, and then the lion is smart enough to grab him as he's trying to haul himself back out. It's amazing. Despite his obvious maiming, his display has inspired Bart to become a daredevil himself. And Bart immediately injures himself trying to jump a car on his skateboard. Lewis, Richard and Milhouse abandon him when it goes south, and he is picked up at the hospital with his new stitches. Dr Hibbert shows Bart a number of people in the hospital who have been injured copying television stunts. Although he spares him the horrors of the Three Stooges ward. Now, whether that's the original film Three Stooges or the Hanna-Barbera cartoon featuring the robotic Stooges is, well, it's pretty obvious, actually. Like other notable Hanna-Barbera spin-offs of long-running properties, the robotic Stooges are non-canon, and therefore it must have been the original film series. The robotic Stooges? I don't even know what, don't even know what you're talking about. There was a Hanna-Barbera Three Stooges cartoon in which they were cyborgs. What? I'm telling you. I am telling you. I'll have to take your word for that. It's every bit as canon as the Godzilla cartoon. In other words, it's not. Right. Undeterred, Bart continues to practice, and actually improves, managing to jump the car, plus a range of animals, a swimming pool, and Homer. But he begins to feel he has no challenges left to conquer, until a school trip brings him to Springfield Gorge, which he announces he will be jumping that weekend, much to Otto's pleasure. Lisa racks her brain for a way to discourage Bart from this stunt whilst not ratting him out to their parents. She takes him to see Lance in hospital, but Lance is even more encouraging than Otto, telling him that bones heal, chicks dig scars, and the United States of America has the best doctor-to-daredevil ratio in the world. Now out of options, Lisa rats him out to their parents. But when he is forbidden from doing it, he vows he will go to the gorge as soon as Homer's back is turned. After a heart-to-heart with Homer... He promises he won't jump the gorge, and goes to the gorge as soon as Homer's back is turned. Homer catches up with him, and in absolute desperation, resorts to threatening to jump the gorge himself. Bart begs him not to jump, and is finally convinced not to do so. And then, it happens. (laughs) Homer takes his eye off the ball and slides down the ramp, gathering enough speed for a mighty jump. It looks like he's going to make it, but boy does he ever not bouncing off rocks all the way to the bottom of the gorge, and as a final indignity, he is hit in the head by the falling skateboard. He is rescued by helicopter, though his head is repeatedly bashed against the wall of the gorge (laughs) on the way up, and he is placed in an ambulance which, after probably less than a second of driving, crashes into a tree, sending Homer's wheeled gurney back down the gorge. (laughs) He is seen in hospital telling Lance Murdoch that his job as a father is more dangerous than that of a daredevil's. Oh, that, that was the first time I saw The Simpsons and it really made me laugh out loud because the, the premise and the timing of that bit where Homer goes down the gorge 
it's 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 just amazing. It's almost impossible to put into words. Now, if you're watching the original run of this episode, you may have noticed it was shorter than usual, and you would have been treated to the debut airing of the music video for the upcoming Simpsons single, Do the Bartman. Oh, wow. I am dying to talk about it, but the time will come. Okay. Sooner rather than later, I feel. This is the first episode of The Simpsons that really made me sit up and take notice. <laughs> I think we've discussed this and uh, are on a similar page with that. Um, that's largely due to the fact it was it opened with wrestling and truckosaurus. Um, <laughs> the fact it progressed so nicely throughout and ended with a spectacular set piece. It was the first time I watched an episode of The Simpsons and thought, I want to see more of this. And a monster was born that day. And it wasn't <laughs> truckosaurus. Or Gamblor, luckily. <laughs> the Gorge Fall, I've been remembering wrong for ages. Um, as I remember, seeing the plummet back down the gorge after the ambulance crash. But this was apparently animated separately for Season 4, Episode 18. So it's come to this, a Simpsons clip show. Ah, uh, okay. The Gorge Fall is also featured as a stunt gone wrong in Season 11, Episode 22, Behind the Laughter. And is shown in flashback in Season 13, Episode 5, The Blunder Years. And referenced in The Family Guy episode, Simpsons Guy, and The Simpsons Movie. And Lord knows what else. It is the... I would say, despite the fact that The Simpsons goes on to be funnier, and despite the fact that the golden years will soon be, be upon us, this might be the single most well-remembered bit of The Simpsons until steamed hams became a meme. Mm, mm. Um, and I, I just really, I really like it. It's really, th this episode is so cartoony. It's like the cartooniness has been turned up just a notch mm. from, from previous episodes. And it, and it works. They're now straddling this line between reality and fantasy that's a really interesting place to be. And I think that's where they're going to do some of their best work. Mm, definitely. Would you like to hear about some character debuts? Oh, yes, please. The man who's no stranger to danger. When he's not in action, he's in traction. Captain Lance Murdoch, voiced by Dan Castellaneta. The ageing daredevil was very obviously based on Evil Knievel, with whom he shares a dress sense. Not really much to say about him, as he's essentially a one-use character, but he will reappear a few times, including in Las Vegas, with his Lance Murdoch's Suicycle show in Season 10, Episode 10, Viva Ned Flanders. Also the debut of Dr. Julius Hibbert. Voiced by Harry Shearer. He is married with at least three children and two long-lost brothers, one of whom is Bleeding Gums Murphy, as revealed in Season 6, Episode 22, Round Springfield, and the other of which is the director of Shelbyville Orphanage, as soon to be revealed in Season 2, Episode 15, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And let's not beat about the bush here, he's Bill Cosby. Is he? He was apparently meant to be a completely different character, Dr. Julia Hibbert. But on the DVD commentary, the writers mentioned that the move from Sundays to Thursdays to take on The Cosby Show inspired them to turn the character into a parody of Dr. Cliff Huxtable, Bill Cosby's character in that show. The inappropriate laughter and the choice of off-duty knitwear reflects this. Oh, I see. Okay. I'm not that familiar with The Cosby Show, I must say, so I'm taking a lot of this on trust. Well, yeah. the, the few things I remember that seems, seems to be about right. The character has been a Springfield fixture for quite some time, although a bit less these days for some reason, assisting in the delivery of all the Simpsons' children, and he is a mainstay in the Springfield Republican Party, along with Mr Burns and Dracula. 
He is a committed capitalist, but is still a better choice for medical attention than his main and perhaps only business rival in Springfield, Dr. Nick Riviera. Right now, in this post-steamed hams world, he's arguably best known for the mirror punch meme, taken from <laughs> Treehouse of Horror 7 segment The Thing and Die, where he distracts Bart's evil twin Hugo with a picture frame he claims is a mirror and punches him in the face. <laughs> and finally... Trocosaurus! Whee! Trocosaurus has a real-life counterpart called Robosaurus, upon which it is based. Which led me to a failed pilot for a TV series called Steel Justice, made in 1992, featuring a cop who learns how to bring his dead son's Robosaurus toy to life to solve the case and avenge his son's death. Oh, my word. I was convinced this is a hoax. Much like Yaki K last week, it's just too good to be true. But it is on Wikipedia and IMDb, and there do seem to be clips. I looked up a lot of this up at work, and I wasn't able to access them, but there you go. It, mm. it might be a thing. And if so, I think it needs a Kickstarter. Right. Yes. Um, Truckosaurus himself will return in Season 4, Episode 12, Marge vs. The Monorail, which cannot come quickly enough. I love that episode. And Truckosaurus 2 will appear in Season 29, Episode 18, Forgive and Regret. And we'll just close this off with some did you knows. Okie dokie. Did you know Lance Murdoch's surname is the same as that of the Marvel Comics character Matt Murdoch, whose alter ego is the superhero Daredevil? Oh, okay. Very clever. The reference to Rasputin formerly being the Mad Russian and now being the Friendly Russian echoes the changes in wrestling stereotypes after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the coming end of the Soviet threat. Such luminaries as the National Wrestling Alliance's Nikita Koloff, <coughs> actually American, and the World Wrestling Federation's Nikolai Volkov, he was, he was Yugoslavian, at least, had taken the step of turning face, as they say in the trade, and embracing the fans in the American way. Now, just in case you thought that might be the end of lazy foreign stereotyping in that form of entertainment, I can tell you that at the time, the WWF had the Iraqi threat in full swing, <laughs> with the pieces being put in place for real American Hulk Hogan versus Iraqi sympathizer Sergeant Slaughter at WrestleMania 7. <laughs> and in case you thought that was at least the end of Cold War-era-style Soviet threat characters, we've had both Vladimir Kozlov and Alexander Rusev the latter accompanied by the ravishing Russian Lana, doing their best Ivan Drago impressions in the last decade or so of the now-recrescent world wrestling entertainment. Wow, wow. Finally, Mr. Largo counts in Schubert's Unfinished Symphony with a 5678 count. Which is very odd. Woohoo, woohoo, as we all <laughs> used to say back in the day. Oh, yes. But its time signature is 12 over 8, so that count wouldn't produce the desired rhythm. No. Although it could help everyone start at the same time, which the school band does not do. They also play only the first movement, and a second exists, along with the first two pages of a scherzo, meaning they didn't even finish the unfinished symphony. <laughs> and from my exhaustive research of all the five minutes, I don't think we necessarily know how much longer Sherbert was planning on making this thing. <laughs> But the logical conclusion would have been to at least have a fourth movement, which, if ever written, is lost to the ages. Mm. And that's Bart the Daredevil, wrestling, and Sherbert. Yeah, but before we carry on, I just need to talk about those wrestlers. 
because 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 it's almost like they were written for me because one of them's based on Rasputin, who is an absolutely fascinating character. So Rasputin played a huge role in the downfall of the uh, Romanovs, um, and you know especially in the skeptic world because he was meant to be a faith healer. So one of the Romanov children had haemophilia, which uh, he would have got from Queen Victoria. What the doctors were doing was giving him this miracle cure-all drug, which is aspirin. And we know now that aspirin is a blood thinner. So, so if all that Rasputin was doing was saying, hey, keep the kid away from the doctor, then he would have had a much better chance of survival. And the story of Rasputin's death is amazing as well. He was like some non-giving-up Russian monk guy. It was incredible. Um, it was a shame how he carried on. Mm. <laughs> so, so yeah, go, go and read up on Rasputin if you don't know about him. He's, he's an absolutely fascinating character from, from Russian history. And the other one is based on Werner... <laughs> and the other one is based on Werner von Braun... Which is with a, a U rather than a W. Yeah, yeah. It, it, but, but to come up with the pun von Braun is brilliant <laughs> in itself. But Werner von Braun was the architect behind the V2 rocket, which was the Nazis' uh, wonder weapon, which was going to, you know, obliterate the UK from, from the safety of mainland Europe. And the thing about V2s is that if you asked a kid to draw a rocket, then they'd draw something that looks a lot like a V2. It looks like Flash Gordon's spaceship. Basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But after the Second World War, he was picked up by the Americans and they got him to work on the Apollo program. So, you know, there's there's a very famous photo of uh, the control room at the time of the first moon landings and Werner von Braun is amongst them. You know the Nazi who designed rockets that were <laughs> that were that were fired at the UK was there with the Americans when when they landed on the moon. It's extraordinary stuff. So yeah, really highbrow from the Simpsons writers there to be to be talking about those two. It's brilliant. Was the uh, the V two? Was that the same as the Doodlebug? Uh, no, Doodlebugs were V ones. Uh, right. The uh, V ones were essentially early drones. So they were small planes loaded with ammunition and they'd launch them off um, wooden ramps that, that were a bit like ski slopes. And they would essentially potter along until the fuel ran out when they'd just drop down from the sky and blow up whatever they landed on. That's, right, okay. That's what a doodlebug was. There, there was some sort of defence against them because it was just about possible to shoot them down. Uh, because they were, although they were really small, they, they flew at the rate of an aircraft. Whereas V2s, there was no defence against them. But the problem with V2s is that they, they weren't very accurate. No, not the V1s were either. And and also, um, they came far too late in the war, V2s. So the Allies were already pushing back the German lines and they pushed them back. Uh, beyond where the V2s were launching from, so so the Nazis couldn't launch nearly as many V2s as they wanted to. Ah, okay. But I th- I think we've uh, we've gone way past our mark. <laughs> hit, hit an earlier war than we were after. There we did, um, we did. But 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 you know when the Simpsons writers base a wrestler on Werner von Braun, 
We're going to go down that route. Absolutely. Okay. Back to the Middle East. Yes, absolutely. So I'd better start talking about Iraq then. So there's one major event of the very early 90s that we've yet to cover, and that's the Gulf War, also known as the First Iraq War. Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait would see an international force led by the USA remove Iraqi forces from Kuwait, but not Saddam from power. So Desert Storm, no-fly zones, Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf, that's all to come in a later episode. In this one, I'll set the scene by having a look at the history of Iraq, the rise of Saddam Hussein, and the events that led to the invasion of Kuwait. So geographically, Iraq is in the Middle East, which of course has a very complicated history. To the north of Iraq is Turkey, the successor state of the Ottoman Empire. To the east is Iran. To the southeast is Kuwait, which is a small but oil-rich state on the Persian Gulf. Saudi Arabia is to the south, Jordan to the southwest, and Syria to the west. Demographics-wise, Iraq is a majority Arab with significant minorities, including Kurds, Assyrians, and Yazidi. In the north, there's the autonomous region of Iraqi Kurdistan. And Iraq would be completely landlocked if it wasn't for the 36 miles of coastline on the Arabian Gulf. The Tigris and the Euphrates converge into the Shat al-Arab, 120 miles away from the Iraqi coastline, and this river forms part of the Iran-Iraq border. Historically, the region in the south of Iraq around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers is known as the Cradle of Civilization. So this region, known as Mesopotamia, which is a hell of a word to try and pronounce, um, Mesopotamia, (laughs) Mesopotamia, from the Greek for between two rivers, saw the people living there go from the Neolithic era to the Bronze Age. And here, sometime around 6000 BC, innovations such as tool making, farming, the wheel, writing and taxation were developed. Boom. Well, for the last one. (laughs) Well, well, yeah. So people stopped being nomadic and started to settle into cities, some of which were huge by the standards of the time. And these cities came and went, and for some of them, historians still aren't sure about the reasons for their demise. So you'll have archaeologists who will dig up artefacts from certain cities, and then as they work up through through the strata, these artefacts suddenly stop, and they go, oh... Okay, something must have happened to that city then. So the first of these cities, and the city believed to be the oldest in the world, was the city of Eridu, founded in around 5600 BC. So the city was founded by the Sumerians, one of the first civilizations in the world. Their cities included Eridu, Ur, Kish, Lagash, Abda and Uruk. And the Sumerians came up with the first known written language, which is cuneiform. So around 4000 BC, the city of Uruk comes to prominence. The name Uruk is believed to be the origin of the name Iraq, and it gives its name to the period of antiquity known as the Uruk period, which occurred around the 4th millennium BC. And north of Sumeria was Akkad. The Akkadian Empire was founded in 2334 BC. Its first emperor, Sargon of Akkad, no, not that one, conquered all of the Sumerian cities, making Akkad the dominant power in the region. Shortly after this time, the epic poem The Epic of Gilgamesh was written. It tells the story of the semi-historical King Gilgamesh and features a great flood, believed to influence the great flood story found in the Bible. 
I mean, if you've got two big rivers, they're going to flood. Yes. Yeah. So meanwhile, a certain amount of merging of Sumerian and Akkadian cultures and languages occurred. The languages started borrowing from each other, and many people were bilingual. Historians call this time Sprachbund. So presumably that was named after a German archaeologist. Anyway, so around 2154 BC, the Akkadian Empire reached its height under Naram-Sin, who declared himself a god. After his reign, the empire fell into decline, and eventually it was conquered by the Guti people, who invaded from the Zargos Mountains. The Guti were in turn overthrown by Utu-Hengal of Uruk. All the different Sumerian cities then vied for power, with Ur coming out on top. It was basically a Premier League of ancient cities all fighting for, dom- for domination of the area. So towards the end of the millennium, a people called the Amorites came into Mesopotamia from Syria, so that's the northwest, and took over. In 1894 BC, the Amorite chieftain Sumu Aibam founded a city called Babylon. Now, Babylon was pretty insignificant for over a century until the king Hammurabi came to power. He turned Babylon from a small, insignificant city-state into a major regional power, conquering Mesopotamia and beyond. And Hammurabi is also famous for his code of laws. The code covers all sorts of areas of law, from divorce to trade to property, and it's the earliest known record of an eye for an eye. But slavery was practised at the time, and the law didn't apply to slaves. So, the Babylonian Empire held until around 1650 BC, when it was overthrown by the Hittites. However, another people, the Kassites, claimed Babylon as their capital. They then reigned in Babylon for over 400 years, before eventually being conquered by the Elamites. I'm pretty sure I know some of this from an Asterix book I read when I was much younger. Yes, probably, probably. There's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of begatting. You know, when, 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 Homer's, when Homer thinks that he's going to die after eating the fugu and he listens to the Bible and it's, uh, and this people begat these people, these people begat these people. Anyway. So following that came the Bronze Age Collapse. Written records from around 1000 BC are very sparse, so historians find it hard to judge what was going on around that time. So was there a big war? Was there a big flood? No one knows. So in around... 911 BC, the Neo-Assyrian Empire came to prominence. Now, they took over Babylon, as well as Egypt, and lands all the way up to Greece. Babylon was under the yoke of Assyrian rule until 627 BC, when they rebelled. They joined forces with neighbouring kingdoms and sacked the city of Nineveh. So yes, they conquered and sacked Nineveh before Assyria itself fell, and Babylon became the seat of the empire. Soon after this, the Persians from the east led by Cyrus the Great, came in and took control, incorporating Babylon into the Persian Empire. And they were in control until about 330 BC, when Mesopotamia was conquered by Alexander the Great. Oh, god damn it. Sorry, nothing to do with Alexander the Great. I just realised I keep missing opportunities to do a Rivers of Babylon joke. (laughs) Yeah, a bit late now, I'm afraid. God damn it. Sorry, carry on. But listeners, I I must apologise for that one. (laughs) Right, so, the Greeks remained in power for two centuries, making Seleucia their capital. Which is a lovely word, Seleucia. Like Mm. it, like it Mm. a lot. So two centuries later, the Seleucids fought wars on two fronts, against the Parthians on one side and the Romans on the other. 
The Parthians were then in control for five centuries, which is a hell of a long time to be in charge of anywhere in the, in the, uh, in the Middle East in that antiquity. So after centuries of constant warfare, the Romans took over the western part of Mesopotamia, and between the 1st and 3rd century AD, Christianity was introduced, and it became well established in Syria. Several states fought for control over the area until several major events occurred in what is now Saudi Arabia. So in 570 AD, the prophet Muhammad was born. He grew up in the city of Mecca, where he had his revelations that would be written down to become the Quran. He had a small amount of followers in Mecca, and they experienced a fair amount of hostility. So they went to Medina in the year 622. And over the course of the next eight years, Muhammad united the tribes of Medina and converted them to Islam. He then took an army of 10,000 back to Mecca and took control of it. Muhammad died in 632, but his rule was succeeded by the caliphates. The first of these, the Rashidun Caliphate, quickly expanded into and took control of Mesopotamia. So in 762, the Abbasid Caliphate founded a new city on the Tigris called Baghdad. Ah, now that I recognise. Mm -hmm. So they used it as their capital and ruled an empire that stretched from North Africa in the west to Central Asia in the east. Baghdad was a key trading and pilgrimage route and traders flocked to the city. It also became a seat of learning with the Hanafi and Hanbali schools of law being set up there. As well as this, also played host to the Beit al-Hikmah, which translates to House of Wisdom, which translated texts from various languages, but mostly Greek, into Arabic. So they just had this huge lust for knowledge, essentially. It was like, get all the, you know, get whatever manuscripts and whatever else we can find and, you know, translate it all into Arabic. Let's see what we can learn. Yeah, which is, you know, brilliant. Uh, Absolutely. Admirable. Mm. So Baghdad became wealthy and educated. In the West, the streets of Baghdad were said to be paved with gold. All of this contributed to Baghdad being considered the centre of the Islamic Golden Age, with the city making key contributions to culture, law, literature, science and mathematics. For example, around this time, the 1001 Nights, often called the Arabian Nights in English, was written. Ah, yes. So, you know, you think about how timeless that is and how many Disney films are still being made out of it. Absolutely. That includes the Aladdin story, doesn't it? Yep, absolutely. That's just one of... Well, a thousand and one stories. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Baghdad continued as a cultural centre before going into decline around the 9th century. Its position of importance came to an end on February the 12th, 1258, when the Mongols sacked the city. Now, the sacking of Baghdad is one of those great tragedies in history, like the burning of the Great Library at Alexandria. So not only did the Mongols kill hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people, but they also destroyed countless buildings, manuscripts, and books. The House of Wisdom was destroyed, along with everything in it. So it's like almost going back to the Dark Ages. Blinking Mongols. You know, what, what they did, they took the leather bindings from the books and used them to make shoes. I mean, there's a practical element to that I like. You, could, mm. you call that upcycling these days. <laughs> I suppose so. So yeah, Baghdad completely destroyed more or less but it was rebuilt by the mongols and run by the ilkhanids a people who were from persia but part of the mongol empire so it's like people who are in control of another people 
yeah, anyway. So after that, Baghdad was captured by several different empires in quick succession, the last of which was the Ottomans in 1534. Now, we need to find an excuse to talk about the Ottomans at length because their empire was huge. They were based in modern-day Turkey, but their influence expanded from Europe all the way to Central Asia. At its height, they controlled pretty much all of the Middle East, with the exception of Arabia. On top of this, the empire lasted for centuries. By the time World War I happened, so we're taking a 400-year jump now, the empire was on its last legs and very unstable. Soon after the war started, the Ottomans started a campaign of genocide against the Armenian population, killing around one and a half million people, and that definitely happened. The Ottomans sided with Germany and ended up being on the losing side of the war. In 1917, the Allies launched the Mesopotamian campaign and occupied Baghdad. Following the establishment of the League of Nations at the Paris Peace Conference in 1920, the British were given Mesopotamia as a mandate with the mandate basically being, sort it out. <laughs> so under the Ottomans, the territory that would become Iraq was divided into three regions, or vilayets, as they were called. And these were Mosul, Baghdad, and Basra. And the British merged these vilayets and created the Kingdom of Iraq, with little concern for the geographic or ethnic makeup of the new country. Uh, that just always amazes me. It just seems so arbitrary. Yep. It's like, right, okay, well, we've got these three administrative regions, right, well, okay, they can be one country now. That'll do, that'll work. There's something very British about that. Yes. With bringing, bringing order to chaos in a way that brings more chaos. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So Faisal I was made king in 1921. And with the makeup, there's, they're mostly Shia Muslims in Iraq, but there's a minority of Sunni Muslims. And Sunni domination of the country was established after revolts by Shias, Yazidis and Assyrians were brutally put down. Again, something the British are pretty good at. The British mandate ended in 1932, and the first military coup in Iraq took place four years later. Coincidentally, it was around this time that Saddam Hussein was born. Now, his backstory sounds like the origin story of the Marvel supervillain. So before he was born, both his father and brother died of cancer. And his mother was so depressed that she tried to abort the pregnancy and then commit suicide. And after Saddam was born, his mother refused to have anything to do with him, and he was taken in by an uncle. Saddam's mother remarried and had three sons with her new husband. So, you know, you think what, what that might do to a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's Saddam's childhood. But the late 30s were a time of great destabilisation in Iraq, with one coup following another. In 1941, Rashid Ali became the latest coup leader and sided with the Nazis in World War II. Good move. This led to the Anglo-Iraqi War, and the British once again took charge of the country. In 1945, Iraq joined the UN and became a founder member of the Arab League. It took part in the 1947 Arab-Israeli War, and the Al-Wathba uprising also occurred in this year, with the people of Baghdad protesting against the ruling monarchy. The monarchy responded by imposing martial law. And meanwhile, the young Saddam Hussein moved in with his new family, but was beaten by his stepfather and once again went to live with his uncle. Saddam would go on to study law before dropping out at the age of 20 to become a full-time member of the Ba'ath Party. And this new party preached a mix of socialism and pan-Arab nationalism and was largely inspired by Nasser of Egypt, who fought the British and the French in the Suez Crisis. Very, very important 
moment in British history, the Suez Crisis. I'll have to work out an excuse to do that someday. <laughs> so anyway, in 1958, a group of high-ranking military officials overthrew the monarchy and proclaimed Iraq a republic, with Brigadier Kasim in charge. In 1961, Kuwait, down south from Iraq, remember, Kuwait became independent from Britain, and Iraq immediately claimed sovereignty over it. Kasim also invited the exiled Kurdish leader Mustafa Bazani back to the country. This proved to be a bit of a mistake as Bazani started fighting the authorities in the First Kurdish-Iraq War. The Ba'ath Party took power in 1963 when Kasim was assassinated. They continued to fight the Kurds with help from Syria, who were also under Ba'athist rule. However, Abd as Salam Mohammed Arif led a coup against the Ba'athists and declared a ceasefire with the Kurds. But Arif died in a helicopter crash in 1966 and was succeeded by his brother. And his brother tried to fight the Kurds again. But this time the Iraqi army was defeated by the forces of Bazani, the Peshmergas, who, who we still have today. The Ba'athists once again took power in 1968, with Ahmed Hassan al-Bakr becoming both the president and the chairman of the Revolutionary Command Council. He would be in charge for the next 10 years, which saw further fighting in the north, and a treaty of friendship with the USSR being signed in 1972. In 1979, Saddam Hussein, who'd worked his way up through the party system, he forced al-Bakr to resign, taking both of his positions. Saddam maintained control of Iraq through the General Intelligence Services. This government department, akin to a secret police, carried out massacres and assassinations in order to keep the population in check. They were particularly brutal towards the Kurds, launching a poison gas attack on Halabja in 1988 that killed thousands. I mean, if you didn't have a secret police force, were you even a dictator in the 80s? Well, pretty much, pretty much. It was... It was it was the it was the sort of like whole strongman thing. It was it, it was sort of like might makes right mm. because the the makeup of Iraq back then and certainly now is in, is incredibly complicated with lots of people fighting each other. So if you've got someone who has control of the secret police, who has control of the apparatus of government and isn't afraid to use it, then those are the ones who stay in charge for a long time. Yeah. like like Saddam Hussein did. So almost straight after becoming president, Saddam entered into territorial disputes with Iraq's neighbours. The first of these led to the Iran-Iraq War, which started in 1980 and lasted until 1988. Though when the peace treaty was eventually signed, Iraq declared victory despite the borders reverting back to what they were before the war started. After the Iran-Iraq War ended, Saddam turned his military attention to Kuwait. On May the 18th, Saddam and the Emir of Kuwait met at an Arab League summit in Baghdad. Weeks later, Iraq accused Kuwait of stealing oil from their Rumaila oil field by using slant drilling. Now, whether or not that inspired the scene in Who Shot Mr Burns Part 1, I can't uh, say. Of course, yes. So days after that, tens of thousands of Iraqi troops built up at the border. Despite attempts by Hosni Mubarak of Egypt to talk to Saddam, the troops crossed the border and invaded Kuwait on the 2nd of August. On the same day, the invasion is condemned at the UN and the Emir of Kuwait flees to Saudi Arabia to set up a government in exile. And also on that day, British Airways Flight 149 landed at Kuwait's airport on a stopover between London and Kuala Lumpur. The 380 passengers were taken hostage by Iraqi forces. 
During this time, hundreds of other Westerners were taken hostage, with some being used by the Iraqis as human shields, which is this very basic idea of don't blow up this power station because there are, you know, there are your people in it, you know, which is a pretty horrible thing to do. So days later, the US sent thousands of troops to Saudi Arabia and commenced Operation Desert Shield. On August the 12th, the naval blockade of Iraq began. The day after that, India began airlifting its nationals out of Kuwait. Over the next few months, 175,000 Indian nationals were evacuated. It's amazing numbers. So meanwhile, thousands of other nationals escaped over the border to Jordan. But on August 20th, 1990, 82 British nationals, including children, were taken hostage by Iraqi forces. The Iraqis released footage of Saddam himself talking to the hostages. And, you know, this is really famous stuff, this is. So, so we asked a young boy, Stuart Lockwood, if he was getting enough milk, weirdly enough. And he went on to say, you shouldn't be here too long. Your presence here is meant to prevent the scourge of war. Which is kind of chilling, really. It's, it's basically t- telling a child, you're here so that we don't get attacked. Which is lovely, yeah. If only the Thatcher retirement and this were the other way around. I could have made a milk snatcher joke there. (laughs) um, Obviously, all my material has been torpedoed. Yeah, afraid so. Thanks very much, 1990s history. (laughs) So all this is going on, and all in all, uh, 4,500 British nationals were taken hostage. And at the end of August, the UN Secretary General Javier Perez de Cuela flew to Baghdad to meet Foreign Minister Tariq Aziz. And he left two days later without an agreement. Because certainly back then, UN Secretary Generals had to have very long names. Yes, yes. And this is before Boutros, Boutros, Ghali. Exactly, exactly. So a week later, President Bush met with the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, who at this point, remember, is also a president. And they met in Helsinki to discuss Kuwait. Now, surprisingly, given the history between the Americans and the Soviets, they were unanimous in concluding that Iraq must leave Kuwait. So in the coming months, both the Western Allies and Iraq sent hundreds of thousands of troops to the region in a huge military build-up. On November 29th, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 678, which gave Iraq a firm deadline of January 15th, 1991, to leave Kuwait or face military action. Meanwhile... A certain British politician was in Baghdad negotiating for the release of the British hostages. And that person, weirdly enough, was Ted Heath, the former Prime Minister. I vaguely remember that. Mm. Um, Yes, that's an odd name to come up in those uh, circles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't really think Ted Heath as being like this dynamic negotiator being parachuted in to to get people their freedom. But anyway, so... So the hostages were allowed to leave a few at a time initially, with the sick and injured being allowed to leave first, but not all of the hostages survived. just need to make that clear. So on December the 6th, 1990, the same day that Bart the Daredevil was first aired, Saddam declared that all remaining hostages would be freed. It's believed he did this after pressure from the Arab League and to try and sway public opinion in the States. Hey, I'm not the bad guy. I'm letting all these people go home before Christmas. So at this point in history, the stage is set for the start of the Gulf War. The hostages have been released, there are hundreds of thousands of troops in the region, and Saddam has just weeks to comply with UN Resolution 678. But the conclusion of the story will have to wait for a future episode. 
<laughs> so I think that was a, a pretty spectacular episode. We're, we're uh, nicely on a cliffhanger for uh, the next uh, next part of the Gulf War story. Mm. But I haven't decided when it's going to be. So so it's not it's not going to be next time. But but it will coincide with when Operation Desert Storm actually starts. Excellent. So we we are um, Schrodinger's homers at this point, uh, floating over the gorge that is the story. Oh, I see. Yeah, will we yeah. will we fall or will we make it to the other side? Well, you can be the judge of that if you carry on tuning in to <laughs> Retrospecticus. That was a bit of a poor segue. <laughs> I'm sort of running out of material. So I'll just leave you with the, the news that you can contact us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus or via eel at podcast of Retrospecticus.org. Are we still at that, Tom? We are. Now we that we migrated, we are still there. We are. That email address is still there. Right. But... Twitter is a much better bet, I have to say. Okay, so I'll leave you on that question I should have asked 40 minutes ago and say, see you next time. (laughs) Cheers. Bye, everyone. I don't know why I'm waving at the microphone. (laughs) But I am. Ready for the live shows. (laughs) (laughs) Okie dokie.